we had our first ever Costco, what's called an MVM. It means multi-vendor mailer. All that is, is it means that like you're on very steep discount in every club in the country and you're talking about massive volume. And um, we realized that we were not going to be able to supply this. And we had been working on this for years. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. I'm so excited to share a conversation with you about kombucha and operations, two of my favorite topics. I was recently the moderator for a session that was held at UCLA Anderson by the Food and Agriculture Business Association for a group of MBA candidates where I had a fireside chat with Justin Trout, co-founder and former COO of HealthAid Kombucha. In this conversation, Justin dives into the nitty gritty behind the scenes stories from growing a kombucha business from a single farmer's market to almost 50,000 retail doors during his tenure as COO. And you get some snippets from me about growing Lip Bar. Listen in to learn the stages of HealthAid's growth, the decision to self-manufacture, the process of transitioning from doing operations work to managing a team of operations personnel, first operations hires, overcoming a year with over 2,000 employees turning over, implementing an ERP system, discerning which experts to listen to, where Justin draws inspiration and why he loves operations, and more. I would love just by kind of kicking it off, and we talked a little bit about this as we were getting on the chat of, I think both of us are not like stereotypical, like, you know, we decided to go into operations and chose it as a career track. And we're like, let's learn all the technical stuff first. It was more something that just kind of happened. I was doing operations and then somebody was like, oh, you're an operations person. And I was like, I am like, that's what that is. So Justin, I'd love to hear a little bit from you, like, you know, how, as health aid was getting started, how did you kind of fall into the operations role? And, you know, how did that kind of split off as, as your section of the, of the company? Well, thanks for having me. Um, hello everyone. And um, yeah, good question. So the way it really started off is that, you know, we founded this company. It was me and my wife and our best friend. And, um, you know, we were really into kombucha. We wanted to have a business. Um, that was, I mean, we really wanted to have a business. That was the first thing. That's all that really mattered. Um, we had some ideas and kombucha happened to be it. And we fell into it because, you know, Dinah and Vanessa are definitely your, I think I said this word earlier, your sort of front of house rainmaker types. It's obviously where they shine. I honestly, my background is that I've been a musician my whole life. Uh, that was my, I thought I was going to be a musician. Um, I practiced all the time. I went to school for it, all these things. And I came to LA and, you know, I kind of kept my head above water, but it it's caps off to anybody who does it long-term because it's, it's a real grind. And so I naturally had, um, I liked details. I liked making things work. I had a real appreciation for, you know, how things connect into a bigger picture. And quite honestly, I really like supporting, um, you know, sort of like the main characters. It, it gave me a, a feeling of, um, you know, just real satisfaction to be able to know that, like, I made sure that happened. Maybe other people know it, maybe they don't, but I know it. And that made me feel really good. That's just the kind of person I am, like, inside. Yeah, I even saw... Like, look, it looked like you had some like international sales on your, your record as well. And even looking at like on LinkedIn, it looked like there was like reporting and logistics management. So even before this, you were like, you were into the details of things. Yeah. I think I groove on that. Details are fun for me, you know, but I'm not like, you know, as a founder, 
it's you you can't just be a details person like that totally doesn't work in fact it's almost like there's a shadow side to the details certainly as a founder where maybe subconsciously you can bury yourself in the details to avoid looking at something that's a bigger picture item. And, um, you know, then in, in a sense, it's almost like you can tell yourself um, that you're not responsible or it's not your fault or, you know, you don't have ownership over something much larger. So if I'm talking to a room of potential founders here who want to understand about operations, it's like the details are great. They're important, obviously. However, you have to be able to zoom in and you have to be able to zoom out. Um, and if that's a struggle for you, maybe identify that blind spot and try to find ways to remedy it, whether it's with um, a co-founder or certain types of coaching or just techniques that you can use to be able to make sure that you're not getting caught in your own little corner of the world too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as health, health aid was getting started at, at what point did it kind of become a, a full-time operations? Maybe you even realized it was operations at this point, like were you still were you still making things at home? Had you moved to a facility? Like what did kind of at first look like when you kind of full time were devoting all right, all day every day is health aid operations? When was that stage? Yes. Yeah, so good question because in the beginning of the business, um, there were the three of us, and then we had hired some people, you know, to kind of help out in production and maybe to help out in farmers markets and some deliveries and things that were really early on. But it was, at least for me, Dinah Vanessa, the co-founders, it was everybody does everything. And we reached a point where uh, early on where we thought, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. This is never going to work. And so really simply, this is like totally simple. We just took some post-it notes and we went through on each post-it note, we wrote something, a job, a role, some kind of part of the business, didn't matter what it was, like putting bottles into boxes, driving them someplace, getting new customers, recording our sales, like every little thing, right? We were awfully young and just stuck up on a wall. And then we went through and we found the natural categories that they fit in. And it became pretty clear that there were like, and then we said, well, there's three of us. So let's take the categories and arrange the categories in the three broader categories. And it became obvious that like, you know, there was sort of like the leadership -y side, which would be Dinah. There was uh, leadership and marketing was, was really Dinah, sales, Vanessa, and then everything back of house, me. And it just, and it was, it was kind of funny. We all said like, all right, here are the categories. No, we don't want to like, put you know, on any kind of anything on someone that doesn't want it. Okay. Like we're here because we want to be. So how about we all just like walk to the one, the part of the wall that feels right to you. And we all just immediately went to our, our spots. So it felt good. And that's honestly how it became, okay, Justin, you are in charge of supporting the sales that Vanessa brings in. Dinah, you have got to be drumming up um, a brand and supporting the marketing and, and everything that, that's going to help us drive the revenue side. And you're on leadership, which has some of the broader areas of like, you know, what do we stand for and, 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 and helping us with employee relations and before we even had investment. And then, of course, as it grows, then, you know, the CEO does all those functions. Right. Yeah. I, I really like that method of kind of basing on different people's strengths, because I think too, with operations, operations, people can look super different. Like operations doesn't have to mean one thing. You may be really strong in one thing. And that may mean someone else on your team does it. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be a traditional, this is exactly what an operations person always does. It can be very strengths based. And I love that, that approach of just, you know, using sticky notes and thinking about what each person is good at and what they should do and what they like to do. It makes for a lot happier, cohesive team. Yeah. Well, the output's better too. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a better job as something I'm good at versus something where I feel like I'm I'm always sort of struggling. I think that you know, just from a practical level, um, if you're struggling, you're struggling, and then also just from sort of an internal level, it, it starts to wear on your own psychology, right? And then so, at least from a um, a startup, a founding perspective, what you don't need is a lack of confidence. Don't 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 do not permit that. Bad bad bad. So. Um, you know, you want people in a position where they feel like they're succeeding every single day mm-hmm. and driving the company forward every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, deciding to kind of pivot into more operations, like I I started in sales and was like, I should learn how to do sales. And then I started like fixing everything at the company, like, oh, the website's broken. Oh, this process is broken. And I kept and then I was like, wait, would you pay me to fix all this other stuff? And they're like, Yeah, we would pay you. And I was like, Oh, well, I want to do that instead of sales. Like I can still do sales if you need me to, but I'll do that. And it just kind of, it just kind of happened to just kind of pivot over. And then from there, I just kind of hopped from company to company being like, Hey, I'll just, I'll start fixing things. I'll do the processes. And it just, it just kind of happened. Sounds like that's who you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned um, that health aid, you know, you mentioned like getting to a 70 million bottle number. Can you walk us through some of the like stages of the company, some maybe key pivots, and then we can kind of dive into, into them a little more in detail, but like, you know, maybe the first facility move and then, you know, another facility move or, you know, ever outsourcing manufacturing, how'd you kind of decide those key scaling? When were those key scaling moments? Maybe kind of walk us through and then we can dig into that. Some of them some more. Yeah. Okay. No problem. And as I explain this, um, I'll keep it high level, but a quick like overview or something to note is that this is going to look a lot more like a founder story than an operations excellence story. Um, because you know, that that's just what it was. And you'll understand what I mean when I explain. So we started off in our, in our apartment, not legal to do. Oh, well, we're founders. What are you going to do? We're selling in a farmer's market, arrest me. And then, so (laughs) next move is that, okay, they might arrest me. Um, I'm going to need to get like an actual health permit founder move. Well, we don't have any money and we don't know how to get a health permit. I don't know what this is. So we just, you know, failure is not an option, right? Cannot fail. So we thought, how do we get this? And a random idea was a friend of a friend had a bake shop in Manhattan Beach. And we went to her and said, hey, what if each of us worked a shift for you? Because you're the only person here. So you're losing your hair trying to work. What if we each worked a shift for you? And in exchange, we put some kombucha jars in your back of house and you give us your health permit number. Good. She was like, "Uh, yeah, like start now. Bang, have a health permit number. Next, we obviously, we were expanding. We needed a facility. I found one, um, I thought, and it turned out that it was going to take like $100,000 to turn it into an actual food production area. I told the landlord, I was like, hey, um, I know that I signed this, but like, I can't do it. So he was upset with that and decide, and he thought like, oh, wait, I have a, I, I have a solution. There was a company that had a test kitchen that was fully permitted, but they didn't want to use it and they wanted to sublease it. And, you know, a bunch of random stuff came together, bang, we're in that site. Then we were outgrowing that. And at that point was when we had first gotten uh, a, a chunk of investment from First Beverage Group, whose founder is the namesake for your business school, Anderson. And um, so, we, um, so we moved to a place in Van Nuys and that we knew we had to pay to turn it into something. Now, at that point, we made a critical hire. We hired someone who was previously had run operations at a competing uh, kombucha place. And so that helped us 
uh, sort of scale a little bit quicker just because there was some knowledge about, you know, how to, you know, semi-automatic bottling and how to organize labor and things like that. We outgrew that facility and we moved to, I actually took over more space there, expanded, and then we moved into a place in Torrance, took that over. Then our factory equipment kind of became obsolete because we, we needed more output. It was too slow. And so we upgraded that equipment. And then we expanded to the rest of the building in Torrance. And, you know, at the, you know, so we basically had a 24 hour operation that, um, that was um, about 150 employees there bottling all the time, make fermenting and bottling. Um, and then we have a, uh, a cold storage facility in Buena Park where our finished goods are shipped and they're stored and then everything ships out from there. And then, so all that is to say, like, it was really a matter of sort of like stair-stepping, like growth, like, you know, we would have these periods where we have way too much um, production capacity. And then the sales would catch up. And it's like, oh my God, we're shorting customers. This is horrible. So then we'd have to kick it up. And it would be, it would be a lot of that sort of thing, which happens in a startup environment, unless you are uh, doing, if, if you're producing yourself, it happens unless one you somehow, um, you know, you, you, you build way more capacity and, and, and factory capability than you need up front. That's a risk. It takes money. Maybe a good idea. Maybe not. Who knows? Um, certainly from the position you're standing in at that time, you only know what you know. And you can predict what you can try to predict, but you do not know the future. It's not the same as looking back on what you could have or should have done. And so they can happen in, in that sense. And then or if you're outsourcing the manufacturing to a co-manufacturer, a co-packing facility, which is also totally cool. We never did that simply because our fermentation process was, um, it would have, it, it just required way too much from a co-packer. They needed a huge amount of space. They'd have to like heat the area. We had a very particular kind of way that we actually make health aid that didn't fit what any co-packers have at all. It was really a unique production methodology. The pro of that is that we owned it and it's ours. And we put out a product that we think is really unique and special. Um, we're really proud of it. The con is that, you know, you, you know, you, you're constantly investing in, in, in CapEx. And that is, is, of course, really costly, especially when you're burning cash to grow the business. Where does the CapEx money come from? It has to come from investment. There are no term loans for things like that. So it was, um, it, it was tough, but that's kind of the quick overview of the answer. Yeah. I was going to ask why, why you hadn't gone the co-manufacturing route. So that that's super helpful, but because um, yeah. most food and beverage companies by and far are co-manufactured mm -hmm. and operations people that work in a startup that outsources their manufacturing versus operations people that work in someone that does their own manufacturing can have super different roles. I was in a self-manufactured startup. And as I've encountered people that work in ops that they're like, oh yeah, you know, I sent off. I send off, uh, you know, four orders a year to the co-man and then they make it. And I was like, oh, that's very different than the day-to-day -day of managing a labor force, keeping them employed, upgrading machinery as you need it, man negotiating leases yourself and all of the, the licenses that you have to get and everything. So it's a very different different type of setup. Just different. I wouldn't say better or worse either. Just, yeah. just different. Yeah. You have a lot of flexibility with your own production because if somebody has an idea for a product, hey, can you make a small amount of these? Can we test it? Well, I mean, I can. Yeah, sure. Um, everything has a cost, but certainly we can. 
Whereas, you know, that's sort of like, you can't really do that at a, co- you can, but it's harder at a co-man. And then also, you know, with your, with your sort of like minimum size production runs, you know, you, you got to be a little sharper on your forecasting with the co-man. Whereas, well, once again, it's like, we can whipsaw the manufacturing team. They don't love it, but I mean, we, we can do it. So it's, it's sort of, in some ways, manufacturing itself can breed a little bit of a lack of discipline in terms of the forecasting, because it's like the penalty for, for getting it wrong isn't that, that bad. Whereas on the command side, the penalty for being too far off is either a bunch of obsolescence or we don't have the product. And so like, what are you going to do? So, you know, either or. Yeah. I want to go back to you mentioning that first, like key hire and like, I'm wondering about the, like the personality of that person. And then also kind of the role of what you were doing versus what they were doing. Because I think sometimes if you hire operations person who has industry experience and they're joining a startup, like that's very different than joining Frito-Lay and working in operations kind of thing. So I'm curious about like the personality of that person, how you integrated them into the team, what you did versus them. Like, I'd love to learn more. Sure. Yeah. This person was a serious go-getter, um, all about growth um, and, and which is really aligned with what, what we were shooting for. And, um, you know, he presented different concepts for how we might be able to reach our next sales goals, uh, our, you know, our, the capacity that we would need to, to be able to, to, to make that happen. And my, I was a little bit better at taking that and breaking it into costing in terms of like the unit economics of it. Um, and really working with Dinah and Vanessa for us to decide, you know, what might be the next move um, overall. And just making sure that our quality continued to be met. So he integrated really well. Um, it was it was a good thing. Yeah. How many people are on like how many people are operations focused at Health Aid now? Oh, there's like 45. I mean, sorry, let me no, let me, let me, let me stop you there. Sorry, I said that wrong. Operations, when you're thinking about fermentation, manufacturing, maintenance, janitorial, um, QA, warehouse, inventory logistics, inbound, outbound, planning, procurement, like all of that, it's like 200 people. It's a lot. And so um, the way I ran it was that I sat at the top and I had someone who was in charge of fermentation, uh, packaging, right? So they're fermenting it. They're making like the 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 actual sauce that is health aid. Then the next sort of like silo, next part of the production process is to actually package it. And then the third is sort of like the, well, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna warehouse it. We're gonna track our inventory. We're gonna make sure that our sort of we're linked up with sort of like the FPA side, like the planning side. We're gonna be procuring properly. We're gonna be outbound shipping it and transfers. Um, and the procurement was sort of like the inbound side too. So those were like the three parts of it. So I had sort of three lieutenants who had their teams underneath them overall. Yeah. Right. Was that a, was that a shift at all from like when you're, when you've been the back end kind of doing everything and then you start hiring people, then you've got tons of people and now you're managing people. And also when you've got a huge staff with your own facility, you're trying to infuse, you know, when a co-packer does your production, you don't even see it. But when you do your own manufacturing, you're, that's part of your culture. And that's a huge piece that a lot of people aren't thinking about. So what was that like to switch to all of that management and the culture when you've been kind of doing everything behind the scenes, the actual work? Major shift because it feels good to do work, if you know what I mean. Like 
there's sort of, and again, this is one of these like founder paradoxes you're going to have to keep your eye on. Like it's as good as it feels to do the work, it's utterly unscalable. You can't do it. So like grow up, you're a manager and like beyond a manager and you're a manager leader. And then eventually you're a leader, right? And that's kind of how that goes. And so the shift from, um, from technician to manager, if you will, was actually a little bit of a rocky one for me. Uh, I didn't understand it. You know what I mean? I thought that if I wasn't working, I wasn't supporting the company. And then I realized that management in its own way, great management is, this is my opinion, sort of like the, it's the real heart of what makes, I think, industry overall actually work because you're linking great ideas with people who can execute them. And without that proper area of of excellent people management, no one's going to be happy. It doesn't work either way. And of course, the consumer loses too. So that took a lot of coaching for me. I read a lot of books. I, you know, invited a lot of feedback. I, I, I looked within and I realized that like, you know, um, that the only way to, to, to really be able to provide because once again, that was sort of like my motivation was I want to be a provider. The only way to provide for the rest of the company and for the people I care about is that I have to embrace this role as manager leader. And so I just really learned like my own management style and my own sort of like schedule and techniques and ways of ensuring and like measuring what matters, if you will, like what mattered to me uh, and, and what I think to the company and just, you know, constantly tune those things, right? They're not just static, but that's a great question because I think um, as an operation grows, the most, uh, uh, and, and, and you're not there to just neat, 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 neat every little thing, which is what a, a healthy company that, that'll, that'll happen if things are going, you need people who are A, subject matter experts, and B, also excellent people managers. Because what'll happen otherwise is as you try to elevate or need to elevate, you're gonna just constantly, it's gonna be like, like death by a thousand cuts of continuous little issues, little things are not resolved. There's a people issue. There's a quality issue. This isn't working right or whatever it might be. They're just unresolved because we don't have excellent people management. And believe it or not, that'll sink the ship no matter how good the idea is or how great the sales are going or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It was a hard switch for me when I was a I live bar. We had, it was me and three other people. And then within two years, we had 30 people, not the same scale, but it was a big shift. And they all reported into me at some point. And I read, I was like, and then I was like, why am I unhappy? Why is everyone unhappy? And I read the book, uh, what got you here won't get you there. And I felt like they'd been spying on me. And like, it just mentioned some of the little things like, you know, when your team member brings you an idea, you don't always have to add on to the idea, like trust them. And like, I started like taking notes on all these things and then just letting these talented people do their jobs. And pretty soon everyone was happy. Everyone was jiving and things were getting done, but it's a big mental switch that takes a lot of self-reflection, I think. Yeah. That works if those people are talented and I don't mean to come off like rude, but it it works if they're talented. If they are not talented and their ideas are constantly garbage, then it's not in a startup environment. Again, this is another founder thing. You gotta, you gotta, no. 
Yeah, you, there's, there's anymore. <laughs> you have to you have to make hard decisions quicker. It's not like, you know, I've worked at Adidas where you can have a B player, a C player, a D player, yeah. just kind of turn in the cog. The company will survive in a startup. If you have someone who's even an A minus player, they will stick out like a sore thumb and you probably will have to have conversations because everyone's operating at such a high level. Yeah. Larger companies can afford boondoggles. That's what we always thought. They can, that's absolutely fine. Smaller companies cannot, just cannot. Yeah. I'm wondering as you hired, did you ever bring in any like, like within operations, did you ever bring any agencies or consultants or did you mostly full-time hire people? (laughs) Yeah, we did. This was a big learning. Let me, let me give you a perspective. So when you say agency for people, who may know, I think you're talking about temp staffing agencies and things like that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or even like th- there are some outsourced op agencies too. It can run mm-hmm. a lot of things, but yeah, temp staffing agencies for sure. Outsourced ops. Yeah. Yeah. Temp staffing agency. Uh, we are very close. I became very close with like every single staffing agency there is that we could find. And we had a serious turnover problem. Um, Just to put it in perspective, we ripped through 2,500 people in one year. Um, That's too many (laughs) by anyone's metric. And it's because the nature of the job was tough. Like you're fermenting and the way like you ferment kombucha, if you've ever made it, like you want it to be like in a warm place while it's doing the fermentation process. Yeah. So imagine just multiplying that by like a huge, huge number. So we have like this huge, basically like oven where you'd have to work. And there would be forklifts pulling these things around. It, it, it sucked, honestly. And like, and, um, you know, so number one, A, we needed a lot of people that, you know, so obviously the more people you need, the harder it is, right? That's just sort of, right, one thing. Then the other thing is that um, at that time, we were not really good at um, at our planning. You know, that was something that we knew we needed to improve on. And we kind of, that was more of a, you know, link between finance and sales. We weren't great at planning. So what we were doing is more or less like taking orders and then taking two weeks to build the orders and then shipping them out. And we are trained our customers to work like that. Well, on the one hand, it's great because, you know, like your working capital is pretty limited. All right. But what would happen is that the hours and the time was just that the employees were working or the associates, the people there was completely unpredictable, completely. And so we didn't know what was going on. And so we had like, you know, all all sorts of things that made it such that people were not loving working there. And so what we did to solve that was I got smart about it and I realized that our shelf life was too short. So I talked to some labs and I found um, the right tests that would really be able to validate uh, giving us a longer shelf life. Heads up, if you have a food product that has an expiration date, when you ship it to like the distributor, typically you're not shipping. You guys probably know this, I'll say anyway. You're usually not like from, I'm not shipping from me to like Whole Foods or Albertsons or Trader Joe's or something. Well, Trader Joe's, yes, you are. But others, you're typically shipping to a distributor who then warehouses it and then ships it to the end customer, right? So um, the distributor who is your customer basically will only accept product that has... 60% of shelf life left on it or whatever like that, right? Some kind of, you have a way, right? So you can only sit on your inventory for so long until you're, it's, it's starting to obsolete out, um, date out. So what I needed was more time on the shelf life. And then what we could do is start building, get better at planning and start building to an inventory goal. And then what we would do is 
if orders were too much, we would just dip into the inventory and then it wouldn't hit production immediately. It's like an, oh my God, you got to build more. We would just make sure we replenish that safety stock and we'd be building to a safety number. And what that allowed us to do was to start to regulate the workday, put in simple, clean um, shifts that were manageable for people. And then we were able to cut way down on the turnover. And then from there, we were able to um, make a lot more full-time hires and then have a more like um, stable staff. Um, I don't know if that was your question, but yeah, I've dealt with that. And then of course, we've also had consultants on other sides. We were doing, we had uh, consultants for, um, before we really could like afford or felt the need to like build out our own quality team with a bunch of quality professionals and, and things like that, we would outsource um, and have people help us with the different logs and records that we'd have to keep, um, our HACCP plan, which is a food safety documentation that you need and things like that and help us with, with all of that. And then really just make sure that we're executing on that and we're logging everything properly. So they would sort of give us direction and we'd work together and then we would execute on all that. And that was really helpful until it made a lot more sense to just have, um, you know, that staff completely in-house with our own quality expert team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And on the hiring side, the, you know, in our, I think in my first year at Live Bar, I think we went, we were very small, very, and local, we went through a hundred employees. So yeah, it just, the turnover can be super high in a manufacturing environment. And so hearing those numbers does not surprise, does not surprise me. It sounds like you figured out some ways to reduce them, but it just, it's a totally different uh, it's a totally different bear than when you have a co-manufacturer out, you know, they're figuring out the labor and all of those things. It's a, it's a huge thing to have to figure out as, as a founder and as the leader of the operations team, even though it seemed, you know, sure. It's, you know, I had people like, well, why do you do that? It's HR. And I'm like, well, yeah, but the operations person is responsible for if people are there to make the product. And, you know, as a small company, it's not like you necessarily have an HR director right away, helping manage these things. You have to figure out how to make everything work on the go and get, get the product made and out the door. Yeah, for sure. And then there's sort of like the natural rubs that, that, that certain departments have. It's just like part of life. And I have found that manufacturing and HR has a natural rub you know, manufacturing, I need people, I need people, HR, we're working on getting you people. Are you really? Yes. Well, I don't see them, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, it's like, okay, who's mediating that, right? So to the extent that you can like, you know, again, just like make that like a normal day to day to day to day, like the job is simple. Like, you know, you're just kind of decreasing your issues and allowing you to focus on whatever might be the actual strategy of the company instead of just making sure the wheels don't come off this thing. Right. And you, so you mentioned overcoming like the, the shelf life, extending the shelf life. I'm wondering if there's an, any other like big hurdles that were maybe something, maybe it was this a decision that you made or a team member made. One of those things where your heart kind of stops and you're like, oh shoot, we're in trouble. This is like a, this is a business critical moment where we have to decide what to do. And we, and for the, like for the business to continue, we've got to overcome it. I'm wondering if you have any moments like that, that you could share. That I can share. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, the supply chain disruption of, of the summer of last summer was ridiculous. Background is that we, um, our bottles, I signed a contract years before that with, with a broker that works with many factories around the world to create the bottle like you're drinking out of right now. And, um, and you know, the best rates were in Thailand. And, um, at that time, like, uh, 
you guys probably know this, but like a container from Thailand into the port of Long Beach was like at most $3,500. And if you're under contract with a huge company, on average, it's less than that. You know, it's two, two grand. For for two grand for a container of fifty five thousand bottles, de minimis doesn't matter. Great, and you know, and there's there's no they can totally supply. We're we're totally good, and we're gonna keep three months of safety stock uh, at the broker's warehouse here in the U.S. What could go wrong? Well, you know, it went wrong, and so we had a rotten situation where we had our first ever. Costco, what's called an MVM, it means multi-vendor mailer. All that is, is it means that like you're on very steep discount in every club in the country and you're talking about massive volume. I think we were, I think, I think it was something like, uh, yeah, I don't want to say the number wrong. It was something like $10 million in revenue. It was huge. And uh, now it's not the most efficient revenue in the world um, because you're on big discount and it's Costco and all that, but you know, it's really good. And um, we realized that we were not going to be able to supply this. And we had been working on this for years. And so we got together as founders and this was the summer. So we had this company of like 300 people. And like we, the three of us got to be like, all right, back to square one here. Um, what are we going to do? And the question was like, look, you can basically try to starve other, um, you could try, you could try to find a way, but it looked like the jigs up. It's not going to happen. And so what we did was Vanessa, who was in charge of sales, had the best relationship with Costco. This is her job. And she set an appointment with them for the next day to talk. And uh, she told Costco that, well, look, because of this situation, I have to tell you that we cannot commit to this. And, you know, it was like we were supposed to start shipping like in three weeks, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe three. Yeah, like three weeks. And fortunately, Costco was like, you know what? You're not the first people to have this problem. And we're even having the issue because our next thing was going to ask us if they have a ship um, that we can use, seriously. And um, they're like, no, other people have asked that. We actually don't have a ship. Probably should, but we don't. And um, and, and so they kind of gave us leniency. They're like, we get it. Like, you're not you're not in Costco jail. Um, we're going to just have to reschedule this. And fortunately, they had not printed the multi-vendor mailers. There was like, they were supposed to like approve it like that day. And we were able to sneak in there and get health aid taken out of it because wow. that would have been real egg on your face with the consumer. And that's even worse. So we were able to just, you know, make the decision. Um, then we had to tell our investors that like, we're going to come up, you know, a little short on the revenue because we're not going to get this Costco thing. And it's because of the lack of bottles, et cetera, et cetera. However, we ended up, you know, finding a way to get a lot more bottles. And in fact, we actually did hit the revenue goal we were going for because the extra bottles we got, since we weren't doing Costco, they were going to our actual full price paying customers. So it was actually far more efficient revenue for us, even though the volume was lower and it ended up kind of like being not a bad thing. And we got to punt on Costco. Now, the best thing in the world would have been that I have a diversity of suppliers in terms of geography, a and B. So just to, I don't want to run through that. If you're, if you have somebody in Asia, then it's probably good to have somebody like maybe stateside, right? If that's where your company is located and that's where your, your manufacturing is, just to be sure we've all learned that. Let's not forget. Secondly, that not only a diversity of suppliers, but if it's something that's not a bottle and let's say it's like an ingredient or something, can you have a diversity of inputs? Meaning that like, if this particular thing, if you gotta have tangerine juice, well, could you take clementine juice? Could you? Be prepared for that. Because once you're in a global supply chain situation, the first thing to go are like esoteric, like, oh, you want unfiltered, organic, raw tangerine juice and you need a tanker of it? No, we don't have that now. 
So I don't care. You can't pay for it because it doesn't exist. And so you're like, uh uh-oh. So you need both the diversity of suppliers in terms of geography and then uh, in terms of critical inputs. You can't be perfect at that, but that's worth doing a review of once a year to ensure that like, should the worst happen, you as the uh, operations head are going to say, don't worry. I can supply. I got this, you know, and then you scramble and figure it out. So yeah, yeah. I didn't know that before the pandemic, by the way. Like, oh, this, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't born with that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Something that you learned along the way. Yeah, yeah. man. At, at Live Bar, we had a compostable wrapper that we did not have a backup for. And that was something during the pandemic. Again, it was produced overseas. It would come over in containers and it was like, well, just don't have that anymore. And when you've been advertising as the only compostable energy bar on the market, and then you're just, you you can't just switch to making, uh, you know, using single use plastic all of a sudden. And so I was talking to every person in around the country and the world that would talk to me about, can you make some compostable packaging? Can you make some? And yeah, yeah, it's just, it's wild. You have to, we've all learned the hard way that they, you have to have a lot of redundancies in your, in your supply chain. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's anything like things that stand out to you as like your favorite parts about working in operations. Like, is it, you know, where you're like, oh, like I I just love when these pieces happen or this is what makes me keep coming back to it and what really makes me love it. Oh, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you get really close to people like with anything, you know what I mean? And it's like we have such a range of people from all different backgrounds and like job functions and sort of experience and all this stuff. And like people take actual pride, especially when you're actually making something. People take a lot of pride in that, you know, and they they like seeing it in the store. Um, they like knowing that they, you know, were were an important hand in that. So like that, that was really cool. Um, that is really cool. And then the other thing is, um, I know this sounds silly, but, you know, watching bottles just whiz through an extremely high speed uh, packaging line, just getting filled with total German precision is just like, yeah, it's pretty satisfying. Yeah, that's cool. You know, so I like that too. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I can... I can watch uh, machinery or the, or I went and took it. I asked our corrugated cardboard company if I could come to her. And that was like my party story for like years. And my friends are like, that's really the like highlight. And I'm like, yeah, for an operations person, it's so cool to get to watch machinery and efficiency. It's beautiful. It's amazing that it's mechanical. People think everything runs from a computer. It's like sort of, but everything, the sizing and the gearing and everything about it, it literally is a mechanical thing. Yeah. That's why it doesn't mess up. Can you believe it? People are like, yeah. Eh. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. And I think, yeah, being getting to be behind the scenes inspirations is a field where, you know, a lot of times if you run a really cool marketing campaign, everyone will be like, wow, your marketing team is amazing. Everyone will praise the marketing team. If you produce on time, you don't have any late shipments. No one will mention operations. It's when everything goes wrong that somebody's like, oh, you guys missed a shipment. And you're like, we've been, you know, we've been shipping 99% on time. You know, that's when somebody mentions operations. And so it's, I like the being able to be behind the scenes and just yes. make the gears work. But yeah, a lot of times people, people don't think about, or, you know, it's not very glamorous compared to some of the other areas because people don't think about you unless there's a problem a lot of times. Yeah. That's what we like it. At this point in the conversation, MBA candidate, Julia Schweitzer moderated questions from the audience. The first question not caught on recording was what were the key hiring criteria for operations at the mid-level stage? And how did you hone in on A-plus folks? 
Uh, I'll go, yeah. So when you're mid, mid stage startup, what do you focus on? Growth. So um, you need people that, you know, it's not that helpful. Usually, if for in my world, if they managed a Coca Cola for 20 years, that, that's just not growth. They, they, they didn't build anything. So um, I'm looking for somebody who, um, in whatever their functional area might have been, it's that they took something from here and they moved it to here. They made it far more efficient. They are an excellent manager. They they themselves are very good at hiring the right people. And that they, um, in terms of like process, they are able to create process, change process. They have a process for how they implement change and this sort of thing. And they're not just going in um, with... Um, the, with, without really any experience doing that. And what I don't want, so that's, I'm saying, be, be wary of someone who has like too big of corporate job experience because there's just typically not a lot of change. On the other side, be careful of somebody that comes in and wows you because they know how to run and gun. Um, you don't want that either. If you want to run and gun, find a founder that you can find that. I'm looking for an operations professional who knows how to create change and can be a great manager. So that's kind of like my watch outs there. Yeah. And I, I would just add that I'm also always watching the little things that people do that aren't necessarily related to operations. You know, I'd actually just had a, a guest on the Star of CPG podcast who said they made their best operations hire through their Dungeons and Dragons group because they were such a good dungeon master and they were so organized. Mm-hmm. So, and like I found my best operations hire through my third party logistics provider. They were a fulfillment person. This person, I saw how they worked. I saw how precise they were, how organized they were, how much passion they had for their work. And so I was like, someday I'm going to need a warehouse manager. And so I started to nurture the relationship. And I said, Hey, someday I'm going to offer you a full-time job. And she was like, okay, like, let me know. And like two years later, I made her an offer, poached her, brought her over and she basically runs Live Bar. So I, you know, I'm always thinking ahead too of like, okay, if I'm going to need this person, how do I start watching out for signs of someone who's going to be able to solve problems? So question for both of you, any favorite books, newsletters, or podcasts that have helped to support your journey as an entrepreneur in food and dev? Well, um, yeah, I had a couple of pivotal books. Um, one is called The E-Myth Revisited. The E-Myth. Basically, I kind of used their lingo earlier, technician, manager, leader, or entrepreneur, I think they used. That helped go from somebody who wants to work on in the business to working on the business. That was important for me. Yeah, um, It's Okay to Be the Boss is a good one. If you're struggling with um, like giving direction and like, am I allowed to do that? And then um, measure what matters was helpful for me. And uh, I honestly didn't. Re- this is kind of ironic. Um, this is kind of a pun, I guess. I didn't read essentialism, but I read um, what is it? The blankest of essentialism. So I got what's essential about it. And all I so I picked up one thing from it that really matters a lot. I think about clothing. If you didn't already, let's say you have a bunch of shirts in your closet or something, and if you didn't already own that shirt, would you buy it? And if the answer is no, then you got to throw it away. And so I picked that up from the book Essentialism. I'm sure there's more in it. But, you know, that's essentially what I picked up. That, that's my answer. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the E-Myth and, uh, and Major What Matters are both awesome. Uh, I mentioned the one I mentioned earlier, what got you here won't get you there. Um, and then also the one thing, which you don't, you almost just need the title to get the gist of the one thing book, but it's really good for focusing when you have a bazillion tasks to do and helping narrow down on what to do. And then, you know, I, as you know, I'm the startup CPG podcast host, but I, I joined first as a member and that's where I found like, you know, events that were happening, connected with other operations professionals, connect with other food people, and then, you know, ended up in the podcast role. But like those networking groups are oftentimes where I'll find like 
the next podcast episode episode I listen to or things like that. I how I built this and my first million are also really good podcasts that I'll often get some some ideas from. You know, I just want to add one thing. Um, to just one quick is crossing the chasm. Mm-hmm. Really good book. I can't wait to read all of these. Thank you. <laughs> I was wondering, going to nerd out on the data a little bit here. I'm currently helping a super, super early stage founder um, with basically like starting to organize herself operationally. And of course, that means we're living in like Excel spreadsheet land. Can you talk to kind of how you moved from the spreadsheet land into any kind of um, actual service providers that you've used and kind of how you've progressed in terms of the actual data, you know, tracking along the way? Yeah, we were on spreadsheet sheets forever. Um, and, you know, just so you know, there are some larger businesses like seven, $800 million, um, you know, revenue businesses that, that do run on spreadsheets. Um, so it's not like you can't do it. Um, but we had a project to install ERP, MRP, MES, sort of all in one thing. And, you know, just here's the thing when you're doing that, like everybody knows it takes a long time. Everybody's got to be on board for it. Um, and you know, there's got to be a lot of follow through. It's got to be like the biggest thing internally in the company for sure. And I really think that we did that, but it wasn't as successful as it could be. The implementation, like we, we had a goal of zero Excel in terms of like, you know, um, back of house stuff. And, um, we never, we didn't, we didn't get there until I really took a hard look and realized that like very few people on our team have either A, made that transition or B, even worked at a company that that was on an MRP, you know, MES, uh, ERP situation. So they don't, they don't even know what the end product looks like. And it's such a distance from where you're at. So I would just say um, when you're ready to go there, you have to make sure that you are staffed with critical people that are, it's not just like, where are we going for everybody? And you're listening to the consultant guide you around because the problem is they'll get it in that moment and everybody will be following the vision. And then when like the implementation stops and like, we're ready to run it, it's just like still really hard if you've never done it or seen it or been there when it's been complete and it's no one's fault. You, you, you just don't have enough firepower for, for that sort of thing. And then we ended up, you know, making some changes and then bang, all systems go, it lights up and we were a lot more smooth made life easier for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people are implementing like ERPs or making that switch, the focus is on the technical side. Does this integrate with this? Does this integrate with this? Does this have this capability? And yes, that's important, but it's also, it's a huge change management people exercise of how do people's day-to-day work look? What are they used to doing? Where are they used to writing that down? If they used to write it down on paper, are they actually going to input it into something? Or if they really love their spreadsheet and the new interface, are they really going to use it until you figure out how to make it work for them? And there's a huge people part that I, I think often gets overlooked when when something's being implemented. Yeah, like like seriously, don't be surprised if you have to literally shed people, not just the people that you planned because you're trying to be more efficient. You don't need so many people. I'm talking, you might have to shed people that can't make that cut over. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, it's, it's that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So in terms of the kind of subject matter expertise side of things, it sounded like along the way, Justin, that you all had um, kind of strategically brought those people in. How did you know when what they were saying was garbage or not, when in some ways they might be more technically qualified than you? (laughs) Yeah, look, I mean, we're smart people. So you kind of get there, you know, 
you want to use your network. So as someone is throwing out acronyms and all this stuff and they're bip, 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 you know, you're like, okay, just dig, ask some more questions about it. Can they actually speak in like commonplace language and explain it? Does this make sense to you? Just remember that if you're at the point where you're hiring subject matter expertise, you're a pretty smart person. Like you got kind of far. So trust yourself. And if you're like, you know, it's like the old Warren Buffett thing, like, Warren Buffett doesn't invest in businesses that he doesn't understand how they make money. Yeah. Is he missing out on tech? Sure. Does he have like a trillion dollars? Yes. You can also just, you're like, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. And if you don't understand it and they can't make it clear to you, then something's going on there. And then also like, you know, you guys at, at, at your school have an incredible network, like, you know, reach out, talk to people, get some, get some reference, bring someone else in on the interview, like do what you got to do to really suss out, like, is this right for me? Or is this a bunch of like, am I getting wooed? What's happening here? But, you know, like, don't do anything that you like, you feel like, well, this is a wild risk, but here we go. It's like, no, you, you it should feel good. You should trust it. You should know what's up. And if you don't, then you know, just remember you're a smart person. That's all I'd say. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point because I, I know I initially, especially being new, new to the food industry, I was like, oh, I should hire experts that know more than me. And then they would say things that didn't make sense. And I was like, oh, I just must, I just must not understand. And then I would dig into it and I'm like, no, they just don't know what they're talking about. And I could do this better. Yes. Um, and I started to like, listen to myself. I'm like, when I smell bullshit, it's bullshit. Like, and yeah. you just gotta be like, Okay. And, and trust that, like, like Justin said, you're a smart person. You can figure it out. And if, if people can't, the mark of a really good expert is that they can explain it in terms that anyone understands if they, and also if people are relying on confusing you as their selling tactic, they're probably not someone you want to work with because you want people who are going to be open and like interesting to go back and forth with and who's going to be a partner to your business, not someone who's going to be like holier than thou of like, I'm coming in to save your business. And you want a partner who gets it and who's on your team and is on the same side as you and not an adversary. I love that. That is a very empowering note to end on. I guess, are there any like last little nuggets you would want to make sure that um, the few of us who are left would want to hear? And if not, that we can wrap it up. One last nugget. If you're a founder, this path to profitability let me just let me just give you a quick nuance on path to profitability if you're if you're above the line below the line if you're if your gross margin structure is garbage you don't have a path to profitability okay like get that right seriously focus on it if your path to profitability is you're not profitable because well my gross margin structure is right but i'm spending a lot to acquire customers perfect completely different world. Okay with me. But if it's because your growth mar gross margin structure is atrocious and you know we're going to get to that when we scale or sometime in the future, that just means you don't have any discipline in that area. And I'm telling you, once the money dries up from either the investors or revenues slow down or any one thing goes wrong, you're screwed. So get your margin structure right. Whether that means you're charging more to the customers, I don't care. But that, that I would just tell you that like, I've seen so many times that people are like, well, the margin structure sucks, but we're going to go ahead anyway. It's like, uh, you know, that problem will not solve itself. It's going to take somebody down the line, like a year and a half of fighting everything to try to get it right. If you're that lucky. So that would just be my one little tidbit. Sorry to end on like a 
negative note. I just want to tell everybody, watch out for path of profitability. Cool. If it's because of bad margins, not cool. Awesome. Well, thank you both so, so much for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. This Startup CPG podcast is executive produced by me, Jesse Freitag. Theme music is by the Super Fantastics. We'd love to have you join our community of founders and experts. Get the invite at startupcpg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. It's the easiest way to help us grow our community. See you next time.